I mean, it's, it's one of these things where you get to know some of these people and you realize they're speaking from conscience because they are worried about Trump doing things. And so they steal papers off his desk. That's interesting. So I started the Bob Woodward book last night, and that's the, the prologue. And sometimes office supplies are, you know, valuables. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. They park in handicapped spots. Um, I, I, I'm surprised there's not more talk about, do, do, are we okay with this? With, with various staff members undermining the policy decisions of a president. Whether you agree with the policy decisions or not, you can't run a country like that if this becomes a norm. Well, or I, how often does this happen in history? I have no idea. At the risk of sounding self-congratulatory, there aren't that many of the, us who react to stories uh, in any other way than to arms, to arms, as opposed to, wow, this is interesting. I wonder what it means. Yeah. It's just kind of out of fashion. Well, uh, somebody who likes to understand exactly what's going on, what it means is Lonnie Chen. David and Diane Steffi, research fellow at the Hoover Institution. His um, credentials are long and impressive and uh, is always a great conversation. Lonnie, how are you, sir? Good morning. How are you guys? Awesome. Great, all in all. Can't complain. I saw you on with Stephanopoulos Sunday. I thought, hey, we need to talk to you again because you're uh, always like what you have to say. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, the, the traffic report that I just heard right before you guys came back was from Sacramento, reminded me of the time that I lived there and how much I miss it. Oh, cool. Yeah, well, uh, folks, uh, timely traffic on all of our affiliates all around the western United States and and weather as well for people who need weather from the radio. So on on what we were just discussing, the the opening part of Woodward's book and, you know, one of the most explosive claims that you have people grabbing letters off his desk so he doesn't sign them and they don't become policy. I mean, has this happened before in history or is this okay? Has this happened in other administrations? Well, I, I think it's relative. I mean, I think it's unprecedented for people to uh, circumvent a policy decision the president's already made. You know, a, a point that I've I've tried to make is there. There's two different sides of this. One is when you, as a staffer, go in and try to convince your principal. In this case, if you're working for the president, you try to convince the president, "Hey, look, uh, you ought to take a different course." Here are the reasons why. That is perfectly normal. That happens in all sorts of different political organizations. I've been part of those conversations hundreds of times. It is a a very different thing to say once the president has made a decision to then say, you know, we're we're just not going to do it because we don't feel like it. We don't think it's the right policy. Well, you know, I'm sorry. That's not your role. You are there to serve the president of the United States. If you don't like it, you're free to resign. It's a free country. You can resign and express the reasons why publicly. But to, but to simply go behind the president's back, and, and I would say this about any president. I don't care if it's Trump or anybody else for that matter. If you are there to serve the president, you have a job to do, and you should not be doing the kinds of things that have been described in the Bob Woodward book. Well, and a couple of the examples in the, uh, in the anonymous op-ed were they didn't like his views on trade, and they didn't like him wanting to be friends with Russia. Well, he ran on those two things. That's what he got elected on. So to undermine that seems to be really subverting the will of the people. 
Well, that and the fact that, you know, to your point, none of this is a surprise. It's not like he came into office and became a very different kind of person from a policy perspective. These were two of the more controversial elements of his policy platform during the campaign. A lot of Republicans, myself included, had issues in particular with, uh, with the cozying up to Russia. But again, if you sign up to work in the administration, particularly in a senior role, we could talk in a minute, guys, about whether this is actually a senior person or not, because I have my doubts. No. But, but, but if you sign up for that role, then it is your responsibility to carry out the policy of the administration. And guess who sets that policy? It's not cabinet secretaries. It's not White House staff. It's the president. And so we have to be absolutely clear about the chain of command. None of these people are elected. The president is the only one who is elected. So, yes, it is a subversion of popular will. Absolutely. How would you frame this whole thing? Uh, The president famously tweeted, treason, which is ridiculous. Um, But is it a a crisis in management? Is it how would you how significant is it? I think it's a combination of a few different factors. Yes, certainly it seems to me that this White House is probably run and is operated in a way that is much more freewheeling than other White Houses have been uh, historically. But let's bear in mind, different White Houses have different styles. You know, you go back to the Clinton White House when Bill Clinton was first elected. That White House was notoriously freewheeling. All right, so some of this is, is yes, it's an artifact of how the president runs things. But some of this also is what I believe is part of a, of a media obsession, quite frankly, with taking things that happened in the Trump White House and blowing them out of proportion. Mm-hmm. Because there is a certain amount of this chaos and, and, and this backbiting that exists in every White House. You go to any elite political institution, it's a tough place to work. I mean, politics ain't beanbag, right? So you, you have to be very clear about the fact that some of this happens in every administration, but yes, some of this clearly is quite extraordinary. So uh, the editorial came up, the anonymous editorial. First of all, it strikes me that both the writer and the New York Times completely miscalculated how it would be received as as it's being condemned from most quarters. What are your thoughts on the anonymous editorial? Well, you know, first of all, my view is that if somebody really has these points of view, and this is really stuff they believe is happening, if they really believe the president is not morally fit to be president, then they need to do more than write an anonymous op-ed. They need to come out publicly. They need to resign and make the case. And frankly, let Congress and make Congress do its job, which is to, to, to conduct oversight of the presidency. That's sort of the first thing. The, the second thing is, on the New York Times part, my original supposition had been they would never run a piece uh, by a so-called senior official who wasn't actually senior. But now I have my doubts. I really do wonder, because there are are clues that have been given in the subsequent days. For example, one clue uh, that was given by the guy who runs the editorial page of the New York Times, he said, uh, we checked this guy's story out with other trusted intermediaries. And my thought was, well, gosh, if this person really was a high-profile senior official in the administration, why would you need intermediaries? Yeah, everyone ought to know who this guy is then. So some of this doesn't check out in my mind, which makes me think senior is not as senior as we think. Boy, and they're going to they're get, and I've heard Washington Post reporters point this out, New York Times is going to get huge blowback if it comes out and it's a name most people haven't heard of. Yeah. yeah. Just a, a quick detail. We had one learned reporter suggest to us that there are certainly 900 people within the administration who could claim with some seriousness that they are a senior member of the administration. Do you buy that number? Uh, I think it could be could be even bigger than that okay. because 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 here's the deal: the, the, there is no set definition of what senior administration official means. Every reporter uh, has a slightly different definition, and here's the thing: it's in a reporter's interest 
to expand that pie as large as possible because they've got mm. all sorts of people who are talking to them who are sources. Right. It sounds a heck of a lot better if you say, hey, this is coming from a senior administration sure. official. For any it story, be, yeah. It, 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 it could be a deputy assistant secretary of, of commerce or transportation that you or I have never heard of before, but they'll say, oh, that's a senior administration official because technically his appointment comes from the president. The president appoints thousands upon thousands of people. doesn't make them all senior administration officials. So this is a very, very... A sticky definition, uh, and sticky is not the right word. It, it, it's a very amorphous definition. I'm kind of interested on the culture thing. I've always been interested in that because, like, Clinton was well known, as you said, for uh, they, they didn't wear ties and they just sit around and hang out and everything like that. Bush was the other way; you had to have it on tie and jacket to walk in. And this Cone guy who took the letter about trade with South Korea off the desk, he had walk-in privileges. I guess I don't know how many people get that, where you can just walk in the Oval Office anytime you want. Yeah, so different uh, presidents do it differently. President Bush was very, uh, George W. Bush, was very, very strict about who had walk-in privileges. It was a very narrow group of people. Um, and, and different presidents do it, do it differently, just depending on how they want to run it. But someone like Gary Cohn, he was the director of the National Economic Council, technically one of the president's chief economic advisors, uh, somebody who, who is one of his, you know, I, I, would, I would count him as one of the president's 10 most senior aides. Uh, someone like that engaging in an action like that, where he basically just said, I'm going to take this letter off the president's desk so he doesn't sign it, that is staggering to me. Uh, that wow. is something that, that, that I would be mortified if, if someone had accused me of doing, if, if I were in that position, because that is a, in my mind, that's just a betrayal of trust. And it doesn't matter how you feel about, I mean, if, if you really feel that way about the guy, then resign. You know, why, why are you still there? Lonnie Chen is uh, the David and Diane Steffi Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution, also the Director of Domestic Policy Studies, Lecturer in the Public Policy Program at Stanford University, which I think is a, a community college somewhere in Silicon Valley, <laughs> um, and, and one of the uh, most acute observers of, of politics these days. Um, the blue wave, the Senate now in play, according to some observers. Is it even possible to know how the midterms are looking from this uh, point? Uh, What's your take on that? I I think that things will start to crystallize a lot in the next two to three weeks. I mean, there there are two immovable forces that we have to consider when we think about what's going to happen this November. The first is the fact that there clearly is a historical precedent for presidents not doing well in in their first midterms. I'd say. You, you, you go back historically, presidents usually get creamed. The, the only exception, of course, was President Bush shortly after 9-11, as we remember today, by the way, the tragedy uh, 17 years ago. But, President but even, on top of, even on top of your point is the, among people that got reelected. So Clinton got, re-elect, got killed, got reelected. Bush got Correct. killed, got reelected. Or Bush did the 9-11 situation. But Obama got killed and got reelected. So it's, yeah. it's just what so, we do. So, so that's the first. But, but the second is, you know, the economy is doing really, really well. And the economy is usually the single best predictor from an issue perspective of how, how an election is going to turn out. And, and that would suggest, because the economy is doing so well, uh, that Republicans would be at an advantage. So we're going to have to see which of these two forces gives first, whether it's the, the trend away from presidents in first midterms or the trend to support the party in power when the economy is doing well. Mm. I tend to think Republicans are getting underestimated a little bit. I think that they will have a, a, a very high likelihood of retaining the Senate. The House is going to be more competitive, but there, too, I think Republicans have a shot. Is there some saying you guys lean on to the effect of polling is not turnout? Because there can be a huge difference. 
Yeah, well, that's, if, that, if that isn't a saying, it should be one, because you're absolutely right. When you look at a poll, what a lot of people don't realize is when you look at a poll, that poll has been sliced and diced based on the pollster's turnout model. In other words, it is a presumption of who is going to show up on election day. So I can take a bunch of raw data, for example, and I can say, hey, I think the turnout is going to be 60% Democrats, 40% Republicans. And I can make that poll look much more competitive for Democrats than for Republicans. So it's all about, you know, this all comes down to who shows up on election day, which is why Trump is out there. He wants to get his base out. Obama came out over the weekend. He's trying to get the Democrats fired up. It's all about which base turns out, in yeah. my mind. So on the Obama thing, which is interesting, you have the unprecedented move of uh, a president coming out and really, really bad mouth from the current president. And so I wonder which – you talk about two immovable objects and which one's going to give. You've got Obama on the campaign trail, one of the great campaigners who's ever lived – You'd think that would help the D's. On the other hand, he really gets a lot of Republicans fired up, too. Oh, my God, there's Obama. That's right. I hate the Democrats. So, so which of those impulses is going to win out? Yeah, I, I mean, that is, that is a great question. Obviously, the Democrats think that it's the calculated risk is worth it. I tend to think that it's going to be a problem for the Democrats because the, the enthusiasm going into this week clearly was on the side of the Democrats. Their base was fired up and enthusiastic. They were going to turn out to vote. Republicans, you know, maybe a little bit more lukewarm and tepid, which is why Trump is out there trying to fire up the base. What Obama being out there does is it motivates the Republican base as well, to your point. And so I tend to think that if enthusiasm is a wash, Republicans are going to do better than people expect. Obviously, if enthusiasm is on the Democrat side, Republicans are in trouble. What Obama is, is he is a counter motivator. He is someone who can motivate Republicans uh, like no other, no other Republican, no, no, no Republican can. Wow. That's an interesting dynamic. Yes, indeedy. Well, and, and Obama never seemed to have coattails is the classic, right. you know, right. wisdom about uh, Barack, which is odd, as charming and persuasive as he can be. Yeah, one thing, one observation that I heard made over the weekend, which is absolutely right, is that Barack Obama has never done well in an election when he is not on the ballot. And he is not on the ballot this year. You know, you think back to 2016, he campaigned the heck out of, out of himself for Hillary Clinton. That, that didn't do him a whole lot, didn't do him, didn't do the Democratic ticket a whole lot of good. Same thing in past midterm elections. So we'll have to see if, if the outcome is what he expects. But he has never done well when he's not up for election. Yeah, and that, that part of that just bothers me. That the, the national psyche is so, we're so in love with the president and the presidency. And that's just all that government is for so many people. And it's not a good impulse. Right. The desire for a king, indeed. Uh, So, uh, on that note, what a beautiful transition. I was going to bring up a couple of California political questions, and again, to our non-California listeners, I would say you must pay attention to California politics, because it is a case study for how things can go wrong. But uh, first of all, uh, John Knox has closed, according to one poll, to within single digits, six points, I think it was, uh, of Gavin Newsom. Is that uh, contest actually in play? You know, they're running for governor, I should say. Yeah, John Cox, there's reason to believe that, that, that it could be only because I think there is a, a sense in California, and I live in, in, in uh, the Bay Area where, uh, you know, the politics are pretty, uh, pretty tilted, let's just say. But, uh, you know, the, there is a sense even here that some of these policies coming out of Sacramento have resulted in, in, in overreach. And there is a desire among some that I talk to, and I don't think it's an uncommon trend, 
to to provide a check on the on the progressive impulses of the state legislature and the bureaucracy in Sacramento. Now, if that's the case, then I think Cox has a, a legitimate chance. Now, the, the big disadvantage he faces is that just there's a whole lot more Democrats registered in California than Republicans. And if turnout is high amongst Democrats, it's going to be hard for, for John to win. But I think his message is one that resonates with people because it's an anti-establishment message, but it's a message that says, hey, if you don't have a check in Sacramento, all sorts of crazy stuff's going to happen over the next four or eight years. Hey, top of your head, I don't know if you're the kind of guy who'll even throw out a name. Who's going who's gonna to run against Trump in 2020, man or woman? Well, I, who isn't going to run against Trump is the question. I mean, clearly, clearly Spartacus Booker, uh, Cory Booker of, <laughs> of, of New Jersey is going to run. Right, and Kamala uh, and Gavin? He might. He might. I mean, you know, it's it's only two years. My my guess is he might try to to to, to do a little bit more before he runs. But you know, Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles, Joe Biden could do it. I, I I tend to think, by the way, even though Biden is 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 getting up there in age, he would be the he would be the best challenger to Trump. Oh, if he was fifteen years ago, he's the perfect because he's kind of yeah. got steady as it goes, a little more grown up, normal. Plus, he can really hit the whole working man blue collar thing. So he'd be. Yeah. He, he, but he's old. He's an ancient. Yeah, let's. And and he's never gotten more than like two percent. Yeah, other so time stop you talking about him. <laughs> All right, how ironic! You went back to the presidency. I thought you were the guy yeah. protesting against the imperial presidency seconds ago. I have one more California question. I am going to be listening and taking notes with bated breath because this is my white whale, Lonnie. How is it? That the bullet train has not been killed yet, and and what could kill it? Well, I think when people realize that that the two endpoints are like you know Bakersfield and and Madeira, which is nothing against Bakersfield and Madeira, they're great places, but they're not heavily trafficked places. People will realize uh, that that this is not exactly the kind of project that is worth spending. You know, it'd be one thing if we said, look, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna throw a little bit of money at this idea of trying to create rail infrastructure. Fine, but we're talking about tens of billions of dollars, maybe even more than that, to, to, to build a train that has taken a very long time and is still not really going into the large population centers in California. My sense is the more people realize that this is happening, they'll say, hey, we already kind of have a shuttle-type program in California. It's called Southwest Airlines. All right. So, you know what, you know, Lonnie? I mean, I'm sorry. We, we should have saved time to talk more about this, but we're up against a break that we just absolutely must take. Appreciate your time, but, though. But, yeah, let's, let's uh, renew this conversation uh, soon. Absolutely, guys. Lonnie Chen, always Smart a pleasure. Smart guy. Oh, yeah. Smart guy. Yeah, we're going to spend a lot of billions of dollars before we get to the point that we realize it's a waste of time, though. You're listening to the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty. The conscience of the of nation. Of the nation. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Woodward revelation that has gotten the most attention. We just talked with Lonnie about it. Is uh, Cohn taking that letter off Trump's desk? Cohn has responded. Uh, he has come out and said something for the first time. We'll have that for you coming up in a little Ooh. bit. Yeah. What do you got coming up in the news, Marshall? Phillips? Well, forget gun control. It's now all about bullet control. And Americans are loving the Trump economy. And we got a lot of buzz about Apple's big, big reveal coming down tomorrow. New iPhone? Can't be a new iPhone. Stay with us. iPad, that's a griddle. Stay. She can cook sausage. <laughs> down, boy. 
coming up on the Armstrong and Getty Show. our Twitter army, the same 22,000 people that have been following us since we first went on Twitter. I mean, we got to 22,000 like in a week, and it's been stuck there the whole time. So there's only, out of all the people listening, there's yeah. 22,000 people interested in following us on Twitter. Yeah, anyway, well, what are you so do? we just sent out a tweet about Lonnie Chen, our guest from earlier. So all you'd have to do is go to our Twitter thing, click on the little Lonnie thing. You can send him a message. Just say, hey, loved hearing you on Armstrong or Getty or whatever. Yeah. I don't think he listens to the show, so he won't hear me doing this. He'll think <laughs> it was organic. <laughs> right. And I want him to think, man, it's really worth going on that show so we can have more of his time. This is astroturfing. Because we really like talking to him. I'd like to disassociate myself from this entire thing. <laughs> One of the things we talked to Lonnie about was the, the revelation in the Woodward book about Gary Cohn, the White House economic advisor, actually taking the letter off of Trump's desk before he could sign it that would have changed our trade policy with South Korea because he thought it was dangerous. I think that's undermining a democratically elected leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that's cool. I think you got to resign if you feel that strongly. But, so Gary Cohn has come out um, for the first time because I thought, is Trump going to fire this guy or does this guy say this didn't happen or what's going on? So Gary Cohn has said something for the first time. The book does not accurately portray my experience at the White House. I am proud of my service in the Trump administration. That's all he says. Wow. That ain't okay. much. Yeah, right. That ain't much. Sure. It's a little milk toasty that as is denials not, go. Yeah, that is not a that never happened denial. Yeah. yeah. And I'll tell you what, we we got so somebody sent I'm reading the Woodward book. I'm only forty pages in and right. I'll have more tomorrow, but um, we got a text from somebody, Politico's Six Controversies, Woodward has had from other books. I went through them. They're all crap. Uh, Dan Aykroyd says something he said in a book about John Belushi wasn't true. I mean, there's a bunch that are just, they're crap. Why is that crap? Man's a liar, he's a liar. You lie about Belushi, you lie about George Washington. His best friend says that's not what happened. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. Mm. Um, and all of them are like that. They're all really weak. I mean, if you've got better examples of Woodward being wrong over the years, bring them to me. I'm happy to see them. I want to know what's going on. But Politico's six examples were all really weak. Out of 40 books he's written, you've got those six, and those are weak. So I'm telling you, th- this stuff is mostly true. One more point, though. Back to the Cohen thing. And maybe I come to this point of view from, you know, being on a couple of juries, handful of juries, and sitting in on a bunch of trials because I find them really interesting. A person can testify truthfully and leave a very, very strong impression. And then other people come and testify, or the defense presents its case, also truthful, which completely changes your impression of what really happened. And nobody lied, necessarily. It's just seen from a different point of view. I could easily construct for you, I won't because it'd take too much time, but I could construct for you a scenario wherein, you know, there are a couple of plans presented to the president in terms of trade with South Korea, and and that was one of the plans, and Cohen saw it on the desk and thought, wow, wait a minute, that's the second plan. That's not the number one plan we agreed on. I'm just going to get rid of it so there's no confusion or something like that. Yeah, but and that's, that's not, the, does, that doesn't fit with the story in the book, though. There are multiple people, there are multiple uh uh, iterations of the letter, multiple people involved, multiple people um, talking about why it had to be taken off and the Cohen desk. And Cohen simply stole it so it couldn't become policy. I find that 
uh, tests my credulity. So why wouldn't you, though, if you were him and you were being portrayed this way in the book, wouldn't you push back harder than that? Then? Yes, I would. On the other hand, I mean, I understand this White House is somewhat floundering. Yeah. But how floundering would you be if you were about to undertake a major initiative and somebody in the cat, well, the economic advisor just went, yoink! And nobody ever thought of it again. <laughs> or the guy who wrote it never said to the president what happened to that. You, you can't that imagine yet? Trump Trump being flighty enough that he just didn't think about it oh, again. Yeah. I oh, can. Trump, I can. But all yeah. of his advisors, his chief of staff, his other trade people, his other right. economic well, people. See, that, that's where it gets to is are they all in on subverting the president because they think he's a danger? That's what I don't know. Mm. Uh, let's get the news now with Marshall Phillips. Yeah, my friends, forget gun control. A new push is for bullet control. New York Times says California's new plan to rein in gun violence is going to be aimed at controlling ammunition, limiting internet sales, banning large-capacity magazines, raising taxes on bullets, and insisting on serial numbers or other traceable markings on bullets so police can more easily track them. Hello, Nevada. Now, around the country, bullets remain subject to far fewer federal regulations than actual weapons, but in Sacramento and L.A., the elected officials have long ago demanded ammo dealers keep detailed records of all sales. Records that detectives go over looking for people who shouldn't own firearms or ammunition. The article cites Sergeant Greg Halstead of the Sacramento Police Department telling the Times about a recent murder where he found an expensive type of bullet at the crime scene. He used the seller's bullet logs to come up with a short list of people in the city who bought that type of ammo and says it led him right to the suspect. As of next year, ammunition dealers across the state will be required to maintain logs of all sales. Again, one of many steps California is taking to limit access to bullets. I think this is a classic. It penalizes the law-abiding and will have no effect on the, uh, the, the, the evildoers. I think it will uh, prevent the buying of ammunition uh, by evildoers who lack ammunition and a motor car right. and are not familiar with Interstates 8, 10, 40, 15, and 80, which will lead you directly into other states where they have so uh, no, no such restrictions. Meanwhile, if you're a law-abiding citizen, you're never going to do anything wrong ever in your life. It's more paperwork. It's more cost. It's more everything. Accomplishing nothing. All right, are you ready for the biggest iPhone ever? USA Today is reporting Apple could very well unveil it tomorrow at a press event. with Size of a twin bed. 75 pounds. (laughs) 